chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. And please go ahead and just remain seated as we read this. I'm only going to read the first 12 verses to begin. This is God's Word. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Well, this ends the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Father, as our Savior prayed for us, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Show us Christ and his grace in this story. By the power of the Holy Spirit, transform us by that grace more and more into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Uh, we've heard these words from Hebrews 11 before, and I think they're an appropriate place to begin our last look at these stories in the book of Daniel. Uh, in this series, we've been calling Faith, Courage, and Exile. We've been looking at lessons that we learn in the book of Daniel for living um, in our own exile in Babylon, living today as we do, far from our heavenly home, surrounded as we are by a world that's broken, 
uh, looking for that city, as Hebrews calls it, whose designer and builder is God. Maybe you've felt the cracks in life this week reminding you uh, that you're not home yet and that this is not the eternal city. Uh, Toward the end of Hebrews 11, we read this long list, kind of the summary of all the people that the writer of Hebrews couldn't go into, into detail into their lives. And we read that some, by faith, had even stopped the mouths of lions. That's almost certainly a reference to the story we're looking at this morning. Uh, Daniel 6, the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Maybe the most famous story in this book. Definitely one of the most beloved stories if you're a kid, because who doesn't want to hear a story about Uh, hungry lions and the danger involved and then Daniel being rescued. But it's really much more than that. It's not this story that just tells us about how to persevere in the face of persecution, how to stand firm in the face of trial. It's really a story that points us to the great deliverer who would come. Daniel points to the great deliverer to come like a prophecy in living color. And the question um, that this story gets at is a question that really could summarize the entire book of Daniel. I told the kids a moment ago, it's a question that the whole Bible seeks to answer. And that's this, will God deliver his people? Will God deliver us? So I want to walk through this story looking at that big question together and focusing uh, on three scenes, we could call them in the book. First, we'll see Daniel's persecution, verses 1 through 15. Daniel's deliverance, verses 16 to 23, and then Daniel's vindication in verses 24 to 28. So look with me now at Daniel's persecution. I'm sure as we read these opening verses, uh, you could sense the intrigue of the story, the political maneuvering, uh, the impossible situation that this puts Daniel in. They say, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. In fact, Daniel, and let's try to remember where we're at in the story, he is an old man at this point. Uh, This is, the exile was 70 years. Uh, 70 years, God's people of Judah were in exile. Daniel entered captivity as a young man. We saw him stand the test in the king's court as he was being uh, retrained, this kind of reprogramming of these captives in the ways of Babylon, and he stood firm. Uh, But this is 70 years later than that, even. So at this point, we have to assume Daniel is an old man. But he's been faithful. He's navigated his time in exile in an exemplary way. So much so that he's managed to maintain faithful devotion to God, but also serve all of these rulers in Babylon with distinction. He's survived the rise and fall of kings and consistently been considered valuable for high office. And Darius, like so many kings before him, is now promoting Daniel. Once again, we see that he's promoted. Basically, he's the second-hand man in the kingdom. Darius, who was Darius? He was a ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, This was either the throne name for a general uh, that history tells us was Gabrias, who had defected from Babylon uh, to the Persians, and perhaps he was the one who was appointed to rule for a time here. Uh, Others say that it's possibly Cyrus himself, the great King Cyrus. If that's uh, so, then the last verse would read, So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, that is, the reign of Cyrus the Persian. I'm intrigued by that last option, but uh, just being honest here, a lot of times pastors, we go to the commentaries, and on things like this, we have to take our best guess. Um, I don't know who Darius the Mede was. 
I'm intrigued by that because Daniel lived into the reign of King Cyrus, even though we didn't see him, we don't see him return to Judah. Darius the Mede uh, only appears in Scripture. That name, Darius the Mede, doesn't appear in the historical record. So we do have to put our thinking caps on and consider who might this be. Uh, according to my Aramaic professor, this is a legitimate way to translate the verse. Darius, that is, King Cyrus. But maybe that's enough Aramaic for one Sunday morning. Uh, Darius, whoever he was, he wants to promote Daniel uh, to be president over the whole kingdom, over the three uh, lesser presidents, the lesser rulers, and Daniel would essentially be the second-hand man. This is a mess for Daniel. Who would want this? You're trying to remain faithful to God, faithful uh, to the God who you serve in the middle of this exile, and I don't know that I would want this. How do you remain faithful serving in such high office in this pagan environment? It had to have been this uh, religious and political and ethical minefield. And we glean a lot from Daniel, don't we, along the way, and the way that he carries himself and interacts with the various kings and kingdoms. But I don't know about you, but I wish Daniel had written a handbook on how to serve God in the middle of a pagan environment. Maybe we can talk to him about that someday. Why didn't you spell it out for us? But there's a lot we can glean from his life. He's an old man now, and he's learned a thing or two about following God in this context, in this foreign land. So he has a lot to teach us. I think there's one important lesson that we should look at first. Uh, the first important lesson we learn from his life is that integrity is the best defense. Integrity is the best defense. You couldn't pin anything on soon-to-be President Daniel. They could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Proverbs 10.9 says, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. So if you put anyone's life under a microscope, you're not going to find perfection. We should shudder at the thought alone. But character, uh, your character as a Christian ought to withstand the scrutiny of hostile inquiry. It's integrity that's at stake. We read of Daniel, no error or fault was found in him. Daniel's enemies can't drag him before the king because of anything he's done, any bad conduct that he's committed. They can't find anything. Nothing sticks to Daniel. It's like Teflon. He's a non-stick pan. This is non-stick Dan, about to be the president. Nothing sticks to him. How are we going to trip him up? He's done nothing wrong. He never does anything wrong. It's the best defense. His integrity is what defends him against all attack. First Peter 3, we remember what Peter says when he writes, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You see, the point here is you're, you should not be a target, an easy target, by living a compromised life. You shouldn't be an easy target for those who would uh, malign the church and attack the name of Jesus because of something that you have done. Do God's will and suffer for it if you must. Uh, but Teflon integrity, this life where nothing sticks, this non-stick life of faith, it's the best defense. That's our calling. This is one thing Daniel teaches us. Another thing he teaches us is this. Faithfulness isn't impromptu. It's cultivated. Faithfulness isn't impromptu. It's cultivated. So Daniel's persecutors, they hatch this plot. They draw Darius into this scheme which proves unsuccessful. They have Darius declare that no one can pray to anyone or anything except for the king for 30 days. 
Darius says, I like the sound of that. It's an irreversible edict, according to Medo-Persian law. It cannot be reversed. Darius buys it, and Daniel faces a dilemma. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. We read, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Let that sink in. As he had done previously. Faithfulness isn't impromptu. It's prepared for. Uh, One of the most quotable uh, speakers of the English language probably in history was Winston Churchill. Uh, He said, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Or again, Churchill, the nose of the bulldog has been slanted backwards so that he can breathe without letting go. I had to think about that one for a minute. But one of, my, one of my favorite Churchill quotes, and probably was no doubt muttered as, as he was scribbling out something with a pen, and people are telling him, you need to get to your next meeting, you have a speech coming up. What are you doing, Winston? And Churchill replies, I'm just preparing my impromptu remarks. <laughs> preparing my impromptu remarks. That's, there's a spiritual lesson in that. That gets to that second lesson that Daniel's life teaches us. Faithfulness isn't impromptu. You don't come up with it in the moment. There's not this wittiness about your faith that in the moment is just suddenly going to figure out how do I stand firm. Faithfulness isn't impromptu. It's prepared for. Daniel had spent 80 or so years devoted to the God of Judah, following God's law in the middle of a pagan land. From that very first test, refusing to eat at the king's table, all along the way, he had cultivated this faithfulness. His religion had roots. He was prepared Psalm 1 says that the one who delights in the law of God sets down roots like a tree by the rivers of water. And when you delight in the law of the Lord, you're setting down roots. You're setting down this stability. And you can prosper in adversity because these roots anchor you in the midst of everything you're going through. You won't retreat. You won't surrender because you have roots that have been cultivated over years, decades. On Sunday, when you gather with God's people, to hear God's word preached, and you receive the grace in the sacraments, you're preparing yourself to be immovable in the face of persecution. When you go to community group and you fellowship with other men and women and children and you're encouraged and you seek Jesus together, you're setting down roots. You're soaking your soul in the truths of Scripture. And that will be indispensable when that time of trial comes. When you spend time at home in front of an open Bible with your family, and you set roots down deep in Jesus together, you're preparing yourself to stand firm when your boss says, just look the other way on this one. Or when you're tempted to blow up at your annoying neighbor. Or when your child says, your faith is stupid. Why in the world would anyone believe that? Faithfulness isn't impromptu. It's prepared for. We see that in Daniel's life. This life of devotion setting roots down deep in Jesus so that even in the darkest storm, uh, you go to him. You go to Jesus. You run to Jesus as you had done previously. So those are things we learn from Daniel's persecution. I want to uh, look with you now at Daniel's deliverance. If you didn't know the story already, yes, Daniel gets delivered. Spoiler alert, as I told the kids. Uh, But let's look at Daniel's deliverance now. Daniel, of course, prays in these open windows facing Jerusalem. He didn't change his custom. 
And in verse 11 we read, Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Petition and plea. No doubt Daniel is crying out here for deliverance. Crying out to God. Even Darius wants to deliver Daniel. He knows this is an innocent man. These men come to the king. They say they've caught Daniel red-handed. They tell Darius that he is bound to deliver the judgment that he declared because that was part of the trap all along. You can't undo the law of the Medes and the Persians. Even today, we use that phrase, right? It's not like it's the law of the Medes and the Persians. You cannot reverse this law. It cannot be undone. Darius tries to figure out his, you know, some way out of this legal quandary. This, this is the law of unattended consequences on full display. Look at verse 15. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. It's so ironic. The king has declared that everyone must pray to him as a god. And he can't do anything. The first thing that we see him do after that is try to get out of something, and he's stuck. He's wrapped himself up in knots. Some god Darius proves to be. Picking up in verse 16, Then the king commanded, and Daniel brought and cast... Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. It's intriguing that you get so much detail in this story about Darius's sleepless night. That's not what I want to hear about. I don't know about you. I want to hear about what happens in the lion's den. It's tempting as a preacher to go there, but the story takes us into the king's bedroom and his sleepless night worrying about Daniel. There probably wasn't much happening in the lion's den anyway. Just maybe the lion's looking at Daniel. Daniel looking at the lion's. And the lion's looking at Daniel, like, well, this has never happened before. But that's not where the story takes us. Daniel seems to be just fine in the lion's den, but Darius is not just fine in his bedroom. What's going on here? Well, I think Darius' sleepless night is really the point of the whole story. It's actually the point of the whole book of Daniel. Because like bookends to Darius' night, you have that question, will God deliver us? He throws Daniel in the lion's den and says, may God deliver you. And then In verse 20, we read that in the morning he goes to the mouth of the den and says, Daniel, did God deliver you? That's the question on the king's mind. And in that sleepless night between verses 16 and 20, we have something analogous to Judah's exile, maybe even symbolic of Judah's own wrestling through the long night of exile. Their pain and their sorrow, wondering if this covenant God would deliver them. Maybe very few people were asking the question by the end of exile. It sure seems like many had turned away from following the Lord. But those who remained faithful and who remembered the covenant promise are asking, will God deliver us? Isn't that question painfully familiar to us? We don't live in Babylon. But we're familiar with this question. Will God deliver me? Generally speaking, living by faith day after day, um, it's, it's easy to question and wonder whether God is going to deliver us from the problems and pain of life and the loss and the sickness and the uncertainty that we face. Have you asked that question? Will God deliver us? The lion's den can be any number of things for you. 
I love what Calvin said. Uh, He said, we ought to learn the lesson here. Since we tremble at the least danger, even at the noise of a falling leaf. At this point, six months living in Virginia, uh, when something bumps my leg, I jump. It's just a reaction now. You have poison ivy, you have yellow jackets, a slug crawling across my flip-flop the other day. That was a fun one. Uh, That's life, though, isn't it? We're jumpy people. We tremble at the slightest danger. Calvin said, surrounded as we are by so many dangers, we would be nervous wrecks all the time, harassed by wretched anxiety if we didn't learn the lesson of the lion's den. Not only is our life under God's protection, but nothing can injure us while he directs everything by his will and pleasure. So, will God deliver you? That's the question. That's the question. And the wonderful news throughout Daniel is, yes, we serve a God who delivers his people. There is deliverance for God's people. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 and following. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Daniel says he was spared because he was blameless. The name Daniel means God is my judge. And the verdict was in. God had found him blameless. We'll see what that means just a few verses later. When it says Daniel came out without a scratch because he had trusted in his God. That's the good news. God delivers those who trust in him. It's this faith that saw Daniel through the lion's den. Uh, Fourth century church father Cyril of Jerusalem said, Faith stops the mouths of lions, as in Daniel's case. For the scriptures say concerning him that Daniel was brought up out of the den and no manner of hurt was found upon him because he believed in his God. And he goes on to say, is there anything more fearful than the devil? Yet even against him, we have no other shield than faith, an impalpable buckler against an unseen foe. So Daniel's deliverance answers the big question for us. Will God deliver us? Yes, God delivers those who follow him by faith. Those who trust in him. People who trust in him can rejoice even today in their trials because they serve a God who will deliver them. One last scene in the story. We'll look at this together just to close. We've seen Daniel's persecution, Daniel's deliverance. Let's look now at Daniel's vindication. His vindication. Picking up in verse 24, we read, The king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. 
For He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and or even the reign of Cyrus the Persian. First off, let's acknowledge that the punishment inflicted on Daniel's opponents is horrible. It's wicked. It's evil. That shouldn't sit easy with us. It sets apart the law of God as beautiful compared to Medo-Persian law. Deuteronomy 24.16 says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Now there are times in the history of redemption and the story of the Bible when God breaks in in judgment upon whole peoples. It's like the judgment day has intruded into the present. But for a human king to take not only uh, the men and the women, their wives and children, people who weren't at fault here, and to throw them into the lion's den, it's injustice. It's wrong, and God's law shines brightly against that dark backdrop. But even in this injustice, the principle of Proverbs 26.2 comes to mind. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. And whoever rolls a stone, it will roll back on them. I don't think that all of these rulers saw this one coming. Daniel lives to see his enemies judged. That's one way he's vindicated. Uh, He lives to see his enemies judged, but he also lives to see his God glorified. Yet again, by the lips of a pagan king. The jury is out on whether Darius truly repented or not. I promise I'm not trying to be a cynic, but there's just so much going on with uh, Darius just throwing all these people to the lions and then turning and praising the God of heaven. It seems throughout Daniel that at the very least, God is bringing these kings to an awareness that there is a God in heaven to whom they are to submit in their rule of the the nations. Whether or not they cling to the promise of God for redemption, we don't know. Whatever the case it is, however uh, amazing it seems, you know, this is this is Daniel's faith put on full display for all of the nation to read and to hear. It's an amazing testament to his faith that the very king whose decree would rob God of prayer and say, no one can speak to God, they must only pray to me, would now turn and give God the glory that he's due. Darius' decree drives home the point. The God of Daniel delivers and rescues. He delivers and rescues. Will God deliver you? Darius says it in his, in his edict. Yes, God delivers and rescues. And the amazing truth about God's deliverance, not just from the lion's den, but from everything that we face, including the sin that held us captive, the sin by which we were condemned through the cross of Christ for sinners. God delivers us from sin and death. The amazing truth is that the ultimate purpose of that deliverance is God's own glory. It's love for you, but the ultimate purpose is His own glory. God will always do what brings Him the most glory. Delivering you brings Him glory. And He will always do what brings Him glory. So you can trust that God will deliver you. Thomas Brooks, writing in the 17th century, said, There is nothing that God is so tender of as He is of His own glory, and that His heart is so much set upon as His glory. Therefore, He will visit them in a prison, and feast with them in a dungeon, and walk with them in a fiery furnace, and show kindness to them in a lion's den, that everyone may shout and cry, Grace, grace. 
That's what God does. So, as for Daniel's vindication, he lives to see his enemies judged. He lives to see his God praised. Glory given to his God. And there's something we can probably add here. Daniel probably didn't live to see his people delivered from captivity. He lived right up to the brink. But it doesn't seem that he saw his people delivered from captivity. He was probably too old to return to Jerusalem at any rate when Cyrus decreed the return if he was still alive. He was this prominent figure. I think we would probably read about him, but we don't. But we can say with confidence that his life was vindicated by pointing to the great deliverer to come. Maybe the best thing of all. Here's why I want us to ask the question before we leave this book, at least for now. Where is Jesus in the story of Daniel? Particularly in Daniel 6. Where is Jesus? We've seen Jesus all along the way. And we've seen prophecies about the kingdom of Christ. But where is Jesus? Does Daniel himself point to Jesus? And I think he does. Uh, Joshua Philpot, a professor at Houston Baptist University, he makes a compelling case that the story of Daniel's lives, uh, the truths that Daniel recorded about his life, are presented in such a way as to present Daniel as the new Joseph. Uh, These correspondences between the life of Joseph and the life of Daniel, they've been seen by a lot of people, but I'm just summarizing here from Philpott's work because I think he, he does a good job of getting at it. Just looking at the events we've been looking at today, how is Daniel the new Joseph? Joseph's brothers hate him as the favorite son, and the other head officials hate Daniel for being Darius's favorite in the kingdom. Joseph's brothers plot to kill him. Uh, They throw him in a pit, and Daniel's rivals do the same. Jacob thinks Joseph was surely torn to bits in the night by wild animals, and Darius is thinking the same thing. Uh, People try to console both Jacob and Darius through the night, but they won't have it. They won't have any of it. They're distraught beyond all consolation. Joseph and Daniel are both safely delivered from the pit. And this is important. Both are captives in a foreign land, living right up to a time when God would deliver his people. Joseph, uh, his bones were carried into the promised land. We don't hear what happens with Daniel. We know he lived right up to the cusp of deliverance when the Cyrus the Persian would free God's people and let them go back to Jerusalem. Where is all that going? Why, why paint Daniel or portray his story in a way that makes us think of the Joseph story? Well, we see here that God writes history forwards, not backwards. God... Uh, he sees the end from the beginning and he writes history in such a way that the, the earlier events of history foreshadow what is to come. And ultimately, those things are pointing like an arrow to Jesus. There's this thread connecting Joseph to Daniel. And when you tug on that thread that connects Joseph to Daniel, you get to Jesus. Daniel's on the edge of Exodus here. You see Jesus, this prophet, hated in his hometown, favored by God, plotted against by the religious rulers. His body is put in a pit, a tomb, and a stone is rolled over it and sealed. And through the long night of death, Jesus emerges victorious from the grave. And I don't think these are just wild coincidences or think things that we're making up because they sound really cool. On the Mount of Transfiguration, this event in the life of Jesus, it's recorded in the Gospels. Moses and Elijah, these big figures, from the history of redemption. They show up. They discuss what Jesus is about to do in Jerusalem. And do you know what they call His work for us in Jerusalem? They call it His Exodon. His Exodon. His Exodus. Jesus is about to initiate this new and final Exodus through the cross and the sealed tomb with the stone rolled away. 
delivered, raised by the power of God. And this final exodus would deliver all of those who by faith trust in Jesus. Will God deliver you? He will deliver you. He will deliver all who trust in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this story that doesn't just take us into the anguish of the lion's den, so much as into our anguished longing for deliverance. And that question, will God deliver his people? The question that plagued King Darius that night. The question that plagues us often. Help us to find confidence in the empty tomb. Because you delivered Jesus from the pangs of death, you will deliver all of your people who will by faith cling to him. Help us prepare for faithfulness by daily living the life of faith and pursuing a life where nothing sticks, not perfection, but lives of character before a watching world. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.